Way City Church, located in Woodbridge, Virginia, is led by Pastor Marlon Yearwood and exists to reach the lost and disciple the believer. I was trying to figure out how to start this sermon today, and I really couldn't get it. So my wife asked me this morning, what are you preaching about? And I said, I don't know. It was mostly as a joke. We picked the text weeks ago. We, I, I knew the general outline, the general places where I wanted to head with this. But this is an interesting story today. I really don't know what's going to come out. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've ever had to preach before. The problem isn't preaching for an hour. The, pre- the problem is preaching for half an hour. The problem is cutting down all the things that you want to say into the things that God wants you to say. You know, there were hundreds of activ- th- things going on in our world that I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about the inequalities. I wanted to talk about the problems. I wanted to talk about the challenges. But that's not what God wants us to look at today. So I had to let all those things aside. And uh, so I thought about doing that. I thought about starting with the end. I thought about giving you the ending and then working my way back to it. I even thought of starting with an apology. But <laughs> I think I'll just start right by going right into the scriptures. I'm going to invite you to join us today in the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 2. We were in Philippians last week when Robert did such a great job. We're going to spend a little more time here today in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 15. The funny thing is, I can teach you everything you need to know this passage in just a, just a short time. We could be done in five minutes if all the responsibility is, is for you to know what this passage says. It's pretty simple. But there's more that we need to do today. I'm reminded of uh, when Jesus was talking to his, to his disciples in John 13. He said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Which reminds us, knowing it is not enough. It's applying the lessons in this passage to our lives. That's the real challenge. Knowing it's not going to help you, but living it out, that's going to make the difference. Here's what it says. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Father, this is just a small part of this great book that Paul wrote to the Philippians. We could study the whole thing today and and find value in every part of it. But this section that we have today, Lord, I I, I want to just get out of the way And let you do a little speaking through me. Help us to realize what it costs us, what it means to us, how it happens that we can let the mind of Christ be in us. I pray that you'll help us to do this, Lord. I pray that you'll uh, guide us and take all my faults and put them aside. The things that I say that don't matter, help them disappear from our minds. But the words that you've given us, help them to dig down deep and to do the work that you've called on them to do that we might be the people, the men and women of God that you want us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think when we look at this passage, a lot of people will take the time, and we're going to take a lot of time today to look at what it teaches us about Christ. 
It teaches us some amazing things about Christ. We, mean, we see the Christmas story in there. We see uh, the, things of, uh, the things of what God has done for us in this story. And that's good. And we're not supposed to miss that. But those six, first six words are really important. Those first six words are really important. And I want you to think about it. Let this mind be in you. I don't want you to go out of here just thinking about what the mind of Christ was. There's lots of books written about that. But how do we let the mind of Christ become the mind in us? How do we become what Christ wants us to become? Because I don't know about you, (laughs) but I know in me, as I've been preaching this sermon to myself over and over again, I realize how far I've failed from this that I have to stand up in front of you today and to call you to do something that I haven't been able to figure out how to do. At 61 years old, I've been doing this for at least 50 years of my life, but I don't know that I've got it figured out yet. I just can't get here. And so if I tell you some things today and they sound too hard, if I'm stepping too hard on your toes, realizing I'm stepping on my toes too. Because every time I go through this in my mind, I have to commit myself again and say, Lord, I've blown it again. I've blown it even as I've been studying this. Help me to let this mind be in me, which was in you. And if you, if you feel that tug, understand that I've already felt it, that I, I'm, I'm still feeling it. I'm, I'm feeling it now <laughs> as I bring this to you. That's why I want to start with an apology, because I'm going to tell you to do things that I can't do. Sound like a typical dad, doesn't it? I know <laughs> when I was growing up, you know, I always ran into that. It's like, don't be a hypocrite, Dad. Don't tell me to do something that you're not doing yourself. And the thing is, I wasn't doing them, but I wanted them to do it. I wanted to do those things in my life. I just wasn't strong enough. I just wasn't holy enough. I just wasn't good enough. My poor family, I don't know how they survived me. <laughs> we were all together for Thanksgiving, and I was amazed. I was, I was grateful, but I was also in awe because I don't deserve those kind of things. I can't live this out. And yet the challenge is, for me, a sinful human being, to encourage you to live them out in your life. And yes, you can say I'm a hypocrite. Go ahead if you'd like. But here's the thing. I know what value this will be for you if you'll live it out in your life. And forgive me when I fail, because I'm still trying to figure it out myself. So let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Sometimes I wish I had a mind. <laughs> I sometimes feel like I sit down in the corner and just watch life go by. I, you know, what do you think about that, Dave? I don't know. I can't figure that out. I see some of the things that are happening in the world. I see some of the things, and I, and I say, what would you do when you're in that, that situation? I'd say, I'd run for the hills. I, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to do these things. And so it, it comes quite naturally to me to say, Okay, I can let my mind go and let the mind of Christ come into me. Because Christ knew what to do in every situation, didn't he? He's never surprised. He's never overcome by a situation. He never said, well, I can't handle that. (laughs) He could handle every part of it. And I look at that and say, boy, that'd be great. So what stands in the way, Dave? Well, I do. What stands in the way? It's my mind to give away something I wanted to say later, but I feel like saying it right now. Scripture is very clear. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need that because your old mind's useless. At least my mind is. My mind goes to all sorts of crazy things. My mind goes to the worst places. And I realize that I need to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And Paul is saying, let this mind be in you. So I better look at this and find out what this is. What is this mind he's talking about? Here it is. It's the mind of Christ Jesus. So who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus. And, and, and again, I, th- I know this is kind of silly, but there's some people out there who may not know this. Some of you may be Im- impacting the gospel for the first few times in your life, and you may just think of uh, Jesus and Christ as Christ's last name. But it's not. You see, they went by single names back then. And Jesus was his name. Christ was his title. Jesus was Christ. Jesus was the Messiah. 
the anointed one, as the meaning comes to us. What was he anointed for? Well, people were anointed for different things in biblical times. I remember when uh, Samuel visited David, he poured some oil on his head and anointed him to be king. There were others who were anointed to be prophets, anointed to be, uh, um, uh, Aaron was anointed to be a, a priest. And when we say Jesus, the anointed one, we need to understand what he was anointed to be. Was he anointed to be king? Well, yes. In a sense, he was. Was he anointed to be a prophet? Was he anointed to be a priest? Yes, in the order of Melchizedek, we have that. But there was one thing that Jesus was specifically anointed to be. And this has been from the beginning of time. When God the Son and God the Father and God the Spirit got together to create this world, God the Son was anointed to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You say, what? Even before the world was created? Yes, it wasn't a surprise to God. It wasn't like he created Adam and Eve, put him in the garden, and all of a sudden they did something he wasn't expecting. He knew that that was part of creating the world the way he created it, and he created it good. But he had to give Adam and Eve this choice, and he knew that they would choose to fail. And so in eternity past, God the Son chose this pathway. Now this is theology, and it gets really deep, and it's really hard to understand. But when, when Paul says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, what he's trying to get across to you is Jesus is God, God the Son. We call it the Trinity, and it blows our minds. Anybody who tells you they understand the Trinity, don't believe them. <laughs> okay? Because all we have are weak analogies. Most of us think of the Trini Trinity as three people who happen to get along really well. They live in the same house and they do the same things. Other people think of the Trinity as one person who puts on different clothes. He dresses like the Father at one time, he dresses like the Son at another, he dresses like the Spirit, whatever he needs. But in some way that I can't understand and I can't describe to you today, the Trinity is three persons in one. And I don't understand it, but I believe it, and I accept it, and I ask you to accept that as well. Because what the Scriptures tell us is that Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Anointed One, was God, and he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I have a car parked out here. It's a little blue Ford Focus. It's got 150,000 miles on it and doesn't run very well. But it's mine. When we leave here today, I can take my key and I can put it into that ignition. I can start it up and drive off and nothing will happen. But you know what will happen if you take my key, put it in the ignition and drive off? I'll call the police. <laughs> and they will pull you over and they'll say, what are you doing in this car? And you'll say, I don't know, this thing's, a, you know, this thing's garbage. <laughs> but what they'll say is, you don't have any right to be in this car. Do you know what you did? You robbed this car. You robbed this man of this car. You robbed him of something that is rightfully his. Jesus was not robbing God of anything that was rightfully God's when he said, I am God. He is the very form of God. He did not think it robbery to be considered equal with God the Father. He already had that from eternity past. It wasn't something we gave to him. It wasn't something that he earned by the things he did. He was God. And here's what he did. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now that blows my mind. I don't know how many of you have ever dressed up for anything. A couple of uh, years ago, we were doing a vacation Bible school in a church. And we were doing the story of Jonah, and we'd had a lot of fun with this. We, we decorated the church up. We made a big old fish mouth that people walked through as they came into the church. I had a guy who dressed up as Jonah one of the days, and he had seaweed dripping off of him as he came in and told his story. And I had a story to tell one day, too. And on my day, I slipped into this big green tube, and I covered my face all in green. I hung these two big eyes on the, on the mask. 
and I snuggled and snuggled up to the front of the church. The kids were loving it. And I got up onto the stage, and they could barely see me, and I would pull myself just, just where I could see it, and I'd say, I'm a worm. <laughs> and you remember the story, Jonah, where you know, that worm eats the gourd, and the gourd dies. Well, I was telling that part of the story, and the kids were eating it up. They were loving it. But you know what? I didn't become a worm. I just put on a worm suit. There are people who think Jesus just put on a human suit. Again, this is theology and it's really hard, but let me take you there. Jesus didn't just put on a human suit. Jesus put aside all that glory that it meant to be God. He willfully chose to set that aside and he became a man. Now you ask, Dave, could you have become a worm? And I can tell you two things. Number one, no. I couldn't have become a worm. I don't know how. And number two, I didn't want to. (laughs) I'm not sure why God wanted to become a man. Well, I am, to save us. It didn't do him any good, did it? He gave up a lot for this. He gave up the glory that was rightfully his. He gave up the things that he deserved to have, and he gave them up for us. This is what this scripture means. He literally became a man. And I think in here we have the first part of understanding what the mind of Christ is. Because in my mind, if you asked me to make that kind of sacrifice, it'd be hard. Even if you said, Dave, I want you to become a worm so your three kids have a good life. Really? (laughs) I mean, I love them dearly, and I would sacrifice a lot for them, but becoming a worm? There's other ways to do this. My mind would get in the way. I hope yours would too. (laughs) My mind gets in the way, but the mind of Christ didn't. The mind of Christ was able to say, I'm going to gladly give all this up to be obedient. To be obedient to who? To obedient to the Father who desired this of the Son. Wow! And I mean, that's hard enough. We could spend a long time in this. How do you get the mind of Christ? How do you become like that? How do you become selfless enough to give up all that you have for enemies? To give up all that you have for these ones who turned their back on you. To give up all these ones who, who did these things. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And we can pause there and get some really good theology here too because Jesus not only came down to be a man, but he came down to die. It was part of the plan from the beginning. You're not supposed to like death. Death is wrong. Death is bad. Death is not an old friend waiting for you at the end of your life. Death is something caused by Satan and brought into this earth by the actions of Adam. It is bad. Don't think of it as good. Death is bad. And we earned it by our sin. Because death in its final meaning, when you really look at it, if you study it through scriptures, it just doesn't mean the stopping of your heart. It just doesn't mean you lay down and don't get up again. Death is that eternal death, that soul death that separates you from God forever. It is that punishment which sin earns. Death earns us every one of this. Every one of us have gained this advantage, unfortunately. It's been passed down to us from Adam, and we've done it ourselves. Our sins separate us from a holy God. Jesus, when he came, he wasn't from Adam, was he? He became a man by the power of God in Mary. But there was no male involved. He didn't have that sin nature passed down to him. He became a man. He became a man like Adam was supposed to be. He became a man like God intended man to be. 
There's an old uh, joke, and it's from the South, so I don't know how good it'll work here, but uh, it says, uh, why did the chicken cross the road? And the Southerners say, it's just to show the armadillo that it could be done. <laughs> okay. I guess they hit those things all the time when they're driving in the South. And uh, when I think about that, I think about this. Jesus became a man to show us that it could be done. To show us that you have no excuse for not living a sinless life. It's your sin in you which chooses to do that. So he didn't deserve death, but he chose it. Here's something else in the mind of Christ. He took something that he wasn't supposed to take in your place, even the death of a cross. We're so used to this that we just read past that and we think, yep, the death of the cross, we're talking about Jesus. We don't think about what death on a cross meant. It meant you were a condemned criminal of the lowest order and you were dying the worst way the Romans could come up with. You were being punished. Your death was not just a quick and painless beheading like a Roman citizen would receive. Your death was an exposure to the elements where you couldn't help yourself, you couldn't take care of yourself, and you would slowly and nastily die from the pain and the dehydration that you were exposed to. And the people that saw you would see that and say, man, that guy must have done something horrible. Man, that guy must have lived a nasty life to be exposed to this. And what Paul tells us is that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you ask yourself, why? Because your sin demanded a sacrifice. Because God cannot allow his holiness uh, to be in the same room <laughs> as our sinfulness. It sickens him. It bothers him, you know. We, we talk about sin and we say it's missing the mark and we just quite, can't quite live up to the ideals that God has for us. And we don't paint sin with a black enough picture. We don't paint with a black enough brush. We don't realize how exceedingly awful sin is. I used to tell this story, and it's, it's a gross one, I'm sorry. Got a lot of gross stories, I guess. But can you imagine making yourself a salad for lunch today? Okay? And some of you probably put lettuce in there, and then you'd put, uh, if it were me, I'd put some radishes in there, because I like radishes, maybe a little bit of green pepper, and you cut up some onion, if you like onion, and you put these things in there, you put a little dressing on it, okay? Now, my wife does not, or my son, I'll use my son, I use my wife too much. My son does not like mushrooms. So if I put mushrooms in that salad, he might go, eh. I might have kind of ruined the salad for him, right? And so you might think, well, mushrooms are sin, because they got into that salad and it just isn't as nice. Now, I'll tell you what the sin would be. It's if I found a cockroach crawling on the floor, cut that up and put it in the salad. That's closer to what sin is like. You know, some of you might eat the, eat the salad with the mushrooms just to be kind. But how many of you are going to eat the cockroach salad? I didn't think so. You see, sin is detestable to God. I can't use strong enough words for this. It bothers him. It sickens him. It sickens him so much that when, when Jesus was hanging on that cross and my sin was put upon him, the Father turned his face away from the Son. Does that register? Do you realize the Father turned his face away from the Son because he took my sin upon himself? Oh, but there's good news. You see, Jesus died on my behalf. And because he was the sinless sacrifice, because he was the anointed sacrifice before the, time, before the world began, God accepted that on my behalf. And he wiped that sin away. You know, if I were trying to clean up that cockroach salad, it'd be a hard thing to do. If I told you I inadvertently put a cockroach in your salad, but I picked it all out, would you eat it? <laughs> I cleaned it the best I could. That's kind of like us trying to get rid of our own sin. It just doesn't happen. We need God to give us a brand new start, brand new. If you, if you were getting a salad from me, you'd say, Dave, is there any cockroach in this? <laughs> no, this is a brand new start. There's no cockroach in this one. 
God gives us this brand new start through Jesus Christ. But we under, when, we do, when we think of that, we have to understand it was the mind of Christ to choose to do this. Not only to become a man, but to give himself up to this. And if this is so detestable to God, don't you think it was detestable to Jesus? You think he enjoyed taking our sin upon himself? Now, again, we, we think this mind of Christ chose to do this on our behalf. How wonderful, how exciting. As Paul goes on, he tells us, because of this, God also highly exalted him, gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ, the anointed, is the glory of is Lord according to the glory of God the Father. Oh, we have this great joy. We have this great... And again, I want you to think of the mind of Christ here. Is this why Jesus did it? So that everybody would praise him? This is our response to what he did. His response was to willingly lay down his life and accept us as we are. To take those scars which are interesting, they're the only scars that seem to remain in heaven. This uh, surgery, it'll be gone. The pain and trouble I have in my shoulder, I don't feel it anymore. But Jesus carries for eternity the marks of that cross, the price he paid on our behalf. He willingly picked that up and chose to become that for me. And Paul says, therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And again, this is why I think we have to keep in mind that Paul isn't just describing to us Jesus. He wants to describe to us Jesus. He wants us to understand Jesus, but he also wants to you understand you. He wants you to understand what you're supposed to be. And he says, you've always obeyed. Whenever I'm around you, obey. Isn't that the way kids are? They, they obey so well when mom and dad are in the room. But you want to really know how well it's sunk in, you wait till they're gone and you see what they do. They might be able to clean their room when you're watching. But how well do they clean their room when no one's watching? Paul says, work out your salvation as you had in my presence, even now, so much more in my absence, work this out. And you think, well, what does this mean, work out my salvation? Because Dave, we're going to get to theology again, and theology teaches us that we're saved by grace. That there's nothing we can do that brings God's salvation to us, Right? There's nothing we do. So how do we work out our salvation? Well, it depends on the way you're thinking about it. To work out your salvation isn't to earn it. It's to take this gift that God has given to you and to live it out in your life. It's to take this assignment which he has placed in your life and be faithful in doing it. I believe that's why it says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're not supposed to be afraid of God, are we? We're not supposed to tremble in his presence because we're saved, because we're secure, because we're his dear friends, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. But you see, Paul uses this term, and if we want to understand this term, it's, it's good to, use, to see how Paul uses it in other situations. He uses it uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 7 when he talks about the people who came to uh, help Apollos. And, and when they did, they came with fear and trembling and served him. And in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 1 through 5, let's go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This will give us an example of Paul himself using this, uh, this phrase, fear and trembling. And I, brethren, when I came to you, 
I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul himself here says that he's not worried about being an eloquent speaker. He's not worried about being forceful and powerful as he speaks to them. In fact, he says, I I wanted to throw all that out, and all I wanted to do is preach Christ. This gives me great hope. Because to stand up here and to preach to you is scary. Not scary in the normal sense. There are some of you who would say, I just can't do it, I got stage fright. I'll tell you, I've never had stage fright. Well, I, I did once. I never had stage fright in all the days that I was playing musical instruments, singing songs, doing things on stage, playing in dramatic programs. I could stand up in front of 20 people. I could stand up in front of 100 people. I could stand up in front of 1,000 people and never feel stage fright. I could perform all I wanted. The first time I ever really felt stage fright was the first time I preached. (laughs) Because I was trying not to be everything I could be. I was trying to find... God's message for the people. And that gave me stage fright. And I realized, what if I don't do it right? What if I'm not eloquent enough? What if my voice isn't stertorious enough? What if I don't impress them with the way I speak? What if I don't pray in a good King James prayer? What if I don't have a good three-point alliterative sermon that ends right at the stroke of, you know? All these things got in my way because I was so worried about how I was doing. And then that first preaching came. And you realize you're going to blow it anyway. (laughs) It really doesn't matter how well you prepare. It doesn't really matter how good you get for it. God takes over in most of these situations, at least if, if, if you're open to him. God takes over, and he does what he wants anyway. That's why I told Lynette, I don't know what I'm going to be preaching today. I went so many ways with this per- with this passage this week. I had so many different stories, and, and that's what preaching is. You've, you've got three hours of material, and you try to trickle it down into what's important to give. And if I were making those choices, I'd per- choose certain things. But I want God to make those choices. I want God to bring to us the things He wants out of this. And that's why it kept bringing me back to that, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And that's the mind I needed to be ready to preach this. Not whether this will sound good to them, not whether this will hit the right buttons, whether I've got a great introduction or a a kick and finish, but how do I clearly point out the fact that we need to have the mind of Christ in us? And Paul felt that same thing and encourages me. It means that any one of us, any one of us, could stand up here and preach God's message. Because it's not us, it's God. And so the only ability you really need is the availability. Availability to be used by God and not yourself. He says, it's God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. God has a way of overcoming all of our failures. I have preached a lot of sermons. Sometimes, I hate to admit it, I've preached sermons after just having a ferocious fight with my wife. (laughs) And my attitude was one of the worst you could ever hope for when you walk into the pulpit. And I had to say quietly in my seat as they're singing all their songs, okay God, you're going to have to take over today because it's not going to be me. (laughs) I'm not worthy sharing your message today. I just blew it with my wife. I just blew it with my boss. I just blew it in this way. I just blew it in that way. How can I preach your message today? And he says, good, stand aside. (laughs) Stand aside so that God's 
message comes through. It is God who works in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. How do you have the mind of Christ? You stand aside. I do not like some of the decisions that have been made in our courtrooms recently. And I would love to talk out about it right here. I do not like some of the things that our politicians do. I do not like some of the things that other Christians do. But you know what God has called me to do? Stick to his message. You see that last section? Do all things without complaining or disputing. Ooh, that kind of hurts when I'm thinking, gee, I want to argue about what these people... No, no, no complaining. That you may be blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. (laughs) Friends, are we living in a crooked and perverse generation? I think so. Now, the funny thing is, throughout history, this has been true. Almost every Christian could say the same thing. And sometimes we look at it and say, oh, our time is worse than these times. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. Our, Our times are bad. We all, as Christians, live in a crooked and perverse generation. Do you know why? We're crooked and perverse people. That's who we are. When Adam decided to sin in the Garden of Eden, that sin continues to infiltrate our lives. And whether you like it or not, You're a crooked and perverse person, and you live in a crooked and perverse generation. If not for the grace of God, that would certainly be me. I know my own sin. I know how deep it is. And you think when you look at a little baby, oh, how sweet, how pretty, how joyful. They're such joyous darlings. There's nothing wrong with this child. Yes, there is. It's a crooked and perverse child. Without God, he is without hope in the world. Now that sounds nasty, I know that. But you see, the good news has to have the bad news first. We're all sinners, and we're unable to clean ourselves. But the good news, as Paul's been presenting to us here, is that Jesus came for sinners like us. He came to make the difference. The, the, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you haven't ever received that, if you, if you found yourself in here somehow today and you don't know the love of Christ, then I, I want to tell you it's that simple. It's that simple. You turn yourself over to Jesus and say, I can't do it myself. I'm a sinner. I, I admit it. I make mistakes. And I realize today my mistakes separate you from me. And there's nothing I can do. There's no way I can clean myself up, but you've said you'll clean me through Jesus. So please do that. It doesn't matter how fancy your prayer is. It doesn't matter if you say all the right words. But if your heart is a a cry to him to forgive you, he will. But you see, I I figure I'm talking most to people today who've made that choice, who've accepted Christ as their Savior. And when I'm asking God in this passage, what do I want to bring to these people? Here's what I want to say to you who are believers. It's easy to come to Christ. It's hard to live it. It's going to cost you. You say, Dave, it's going to cost me? Yeah, it's going to cost you. Is it going to cost me a lot? No. It's not going to cost you a lot. It's going to cost you all. It's going to cost you everything. Sometimes I worry that we don't tell people this when they first come to Christ. You know, if you're going to walk with him, you're going to have to give up some things in your life. I remember a gal who came to me once. She says, I want to accept Jesus. I want to believe in him. I want to join your church, but, but uh, I work at the casinos. Am I going to have to give up my job? Now, what do you think I told her? Well, again, this is where that hard theology comes in. I said, you don't have to give up your job. Jesus wants you just as you are. But I did have enough presence of mind to tell her, but once you're his, he may tell you to give up that job. So when you accept him as your savior, you may find that he wants you to give up that job for something else. Because to live for Christ, to have the mind of Christ, means to give up our own mind, to give up our own desires. 
What's it going to cost you? Well, one of the things it's going to cost you is money. I've heard people say, why do you tithe? I can't understand why you tithe. You know, um, we, we see Marlon talking about the average income in this, uh, in this area. And every time I see it, it just kind of freaks my brain out. Because I hear the average income is about $100,000. And I'm thinking, well, I'm making a fifth of that. <laughs> if, if that's all I'm making, why do I have to tithe? And you see, the minute I ask that question, I'm asking the wrong question. Because what I'm saying is, how can I give God 10% of what's mine? When God is already saying, give it all up. It's all mine anyway. Now, I don't know what God's placed on your heart. It might not be 10%. There's some people that pay less. There's some people that pay more. My mother is a great example of this. She feels so bad right now because she's tithed all her life. And she wants to tithe. And I keep telling her, Mom, tithing on nothing is nothing. <laughs> when you're not receiving any income, don't worry about tithing. Because what God's asking you to give is a percentage of nothing. And nothing is nothing. But she just somehow feels like she's got to give to be pleasing to God. Now, most of us have the opposite problem. I know that's the case, because when we study out in the world, all the instructions and everything, all the um, data we see, tells us that the average churchgoer gives about maybe 1% of their tithe. About 1% of their total income goes to their church. In fact, when I was doing this research, and this was years ago, they said poor people usually give about 10 bucks into the plate. And the rich people give about 10 bucks. <laughs> it's the same number usually. But giving 1% is hard for a lot of Americans, it seems. Now, some of us in the evangelical community who have a little more godly attitude, we do better. You know what our average is? 2%. We've doubled it. But we can't get near percent. Can you imagine what our church could do? if all of us would simply follow the basic command of 10%. And am I stepping on your toes? I hope so. <laughs> because I want you to realize when you think this way, you're still holding on to the money yourself. It's all God's. Sometimes God puts a number on my heart and it's not 10%. I don't have to sit there and say, hmm, do I want to give this or not? Because I've had this battle enough in my life that I can just say, okay, Lord, if that's what you want, it's yours. It's all yours anyway. <laughs> it's all yours anyway. But you know, he talks, he asks for more than just our money, doesn't he? He asks for our time. You know, Sunday mornings are hard for me. It's hard to give that up. I, I work so hard through the week, and Saturday's my one day off to really enjoy. I want to sleep in on Sunday and get ready for another busy week. Well, if that's your attitude, then you've already decided that the time is yours and you're giving God part of it. It isn't a question of whether you want to come to church. It's the joy of being able to come to church because your time is already His. And if God is going to meet me here, where else would I want to be? There shouldn't be, you know, and I, I understand. I understand the poll. Again, I'm not perfect in this. One of the things that really bothered me, we used to have a Sunday night service. And it was a simple service. We'd get together. We would go through a book of the Bible. We'd just have a great time. But every January, or beginning in February when they changed it, the Super Bowl had come around, and we'd have to decide whether we're going to watch football or go to church. Now, for some of you, that's probably an easy choice. But I'm a football fan. I enjoyed that Michigan game so much yesterday. <laughs> oh, boy, that was fun. And I love watching a good football game. I love watching a bad football game. I just my wife thought she was a football widow for years until I, I got her interested enough in the games that she watches them too. <laughs> but you see, when the question comes up, do I go to church or do I go to football? That ought to be a pretty easy answer, shouldn't it? 
One of the problems we had in our church was getting families there on Wednesday nights because Wednesday night was the soccer night in our community. And all the kids were playing soccer. And all the parents had to make the choice. Do we take the kids to soccer or do we take the kids to church? And in my mind I was saying, well, how much, <laughs> how much of the time is yours and how much of the time is God's? I was impressed when I started college. I started at Spring Arbor College in Jackson, Michigan. And the first week we were there, the president of the uh, college got up and talked to us because our soccer team was playing in the national championships. I said, ooh, that's kind of cool. National championships. They'd won every game they'd played that year. And he got up and he says, the national championships are coming up for soccer. And they're going to be playing a couple weeks on Sunday. So I've decided our school will not participate. And at first I said, whoa, that's weird. That's strange. But then I realized what he was doing. He was saying, my priorities are this. God comes first. How hard is it to do that in our world today? How hard is it to have the mind of Christ where we don't think about ourselves, but we think about what is God's pleasure for us? You see what I mean about stepping on toes? This gets hard. If you start asking yourself this question, you're going to run up on things. What does God want me to do in this situation? What does God want me to do in this relationship? What does God want me to do with my job? What does God want me to do with my family? Uh, my brother has gotten so mad at me for talking about, him, about Christ to him that he said if I mention it again, he'll never speak to me. So what am I supposed to do? Well, what does God want you to do? Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And I've preached this before, and I've had people come up to me and say, Dave... There's something wrong with what you're saying. There's something wrong with this because you're not protecting your own rights. You're not protect if you act this way, everybody's going to treat you like a doormat. Everybody's going to take advantage of you. If you don't look out for your own self, if you don't look out for your own good, if you don't look out for your own family, if you don't look out for your own house, if you don't look out for your own money, that people are going to take advantage of you. You know what I tell them? You're right. They will. Didn't they take advantage of Christ? Who being in the form of God didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God? But he made himself of no reputation. Taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Humbled himself to who? To God and to the people around him. Even to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Did they treat him like a floor mat? Yes, they did. Did it bother him? The mind of Christ for the joy set before him, ignored all those things and did the will of the Father. These are crazy things. I've heard a lot of pastors push this in, in the past in different ways. Uh, one man, I think it was Dwight L. Moody, who said, the world has yet to see a life that is lived 100% for God. By the grace of God, I will be that man. He didn't, but I applaud him, his effort. I heard that story and I said, okay, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. I'm not. I'm not. But I try. If you ask my wife and my kids what kind of life I've lived, they'll chuckle. <laughs> And if they're honest with you, they'll tell you, I've made some terrible mistakes. But I hope they'd say this, he tried. In all the failings and all the futility, 
He tried. And that's why I say I'm talking to you today about something I can't do myself, but I'm encouraging you to do it. To let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. To give up yourself. Because what do you really have anyway? What do you really have that you can call yours? What do you really have that's going to matter? When, uh, when Howard Hughes died, they asked his accountant, how much did he leave? And the accountant, in a beautiful, simple way, said, everything. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Jim Elliott's another great example. When he went off to work with the Yaka Indians, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. The challenge, my friends, is to live your life in such a way that the mind of Christ takes over your own selfish desires. That the mind of Christ leads you rather than you leading yourself. When missionaries went onto the ministry field, especially years ago, and I think this might have been a short period of time, so I'm sorry that it was. It, it sounds great. They used to pack all their belongings in a casket because they were planning ahead. They knew the cost involved of going to the mission field. It's easier today. We just fly over there and we fly back. It's easier today. But what is God asking of you? See, it's not hard to understand this. What's God asking of you? Everything. What does he supply in return? Himself. Because you see, he'll let you keep anything you want. He'll let you keep your money. He'll let you keep your fancy job. He'll let you keep all that other stuff. That really doesn't matter. He'll let you keep that nice house. He'll let you keep that great car. All it'll cost you is your relationship with him. The one thing Jesus had, it's kind of funny to say, but you know, uh, the disciples were following Jesus and they said, well, where, where are you staying? He says, you, you see it. He says, where are we going to sleep tonight? He says, well, there's a rock. I guess I can put my head on that. But what he always had, what he never lost, was that fellowship with God. That walk with God, knowing that he was with God. Never lost it until he took your sin upon himself. And then for that short time, God turned his back away. Accepted the price. And then raised him up. Raised him up to new life. And as it says here, he highly exalted him. Gave him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I really believe that scripture is true. And though there are people out here who live their whole life never expressing it, when they stand before God after their life, they will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And as they walk into a Christless eternity to be tormented forever in a place prepared for the devil and his angels, they will say, I deserve this for my sin. If we could only get a glimpse of that, how would it change our lives today? How easy would it be? How, how like John, like, uh, <laughs> oh, Lord. Like he said, there is no problem giving up what I cannot keep to gain what I can never lose. I don't know what heaven's going to be like. I can't figure it out. <laughs> I've tried. I know one thing going to be better than anything I can imagine and it's going to be better than I deserve because God's forgiven me and he's given me that hope and I want that mind of Christ to be in me so that I can work out my own salvation with the fear and the trump, the desire everything in me to serve him not from a place of pride and arrogance but from a place of fear and trembling coming before him quietly obediently and honestly and saying, Father, you 
are worth everything I can give you. Are you going to ask for some money, Lord? I'll give it to you. Are you going to ask for my house in Gaylord, my nice house? Yeah, I'll sell it, give it away. You're going to ask for my wife? Ooh, that's a hard one. Mm. I'm still working on that one. Every time I read in the book of Ezekiel, where God turned to that prophet and said, I want you to be ready because I'm taking away your wife and I don't want you to cry. I don't want you to mourn. And when this happens, you're going to tell the people this is an example for Israel. And if God told me that, I'd say, God, I'm going to need your help. And that's right. Because when God asks us for things, we need his help. We can't do it on our own. You cannot have this mind in you on your own. You need God working in you to do this. You need, with humility, with, with uh, the, the broken spirit that only God provides, to turn away from yourself and to turn to him. If we could do this, what Paul is telling us is here is we would be children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We would shine our light into the world. You don't like what's happening in our politics? You don't like what's happening in our schools? You don't like what's happening in our society? Here's how to change it. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ so that you can shine in this crooked and perverse time, the light of Christ that is able to make a difference. I don't know how else to say it. I don't know what else to do. I can plead with you. I can beg with you. But you see, it's not about me. It's about Christ, who doesn't come down and wring his hands and hope that you'll accept him as his Savior, but he leaves a hard choice before you. He says it can be your way or it can be my way. You can do things the way you want or you can do things the way I want. You can let your own mind control you or you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind into what Christ wants you to be. Not what he wants your community to be, not what he wants your society to be, not what he wants your family to be, what he wants you to be. I'm not responsible for my uh, society. I'm glad for that. I'm not going to be responsible for my school board and the things that they decide. I am responsible for me. And that's enough. I wish I could live it out. I wish I could give you the easy way to do it. All I can tell you is it's a day-by-day, item-by-item, moment-by-moment decision to choose my way or to choose Christ's. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. As you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do all things without complaining or disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Father, (laughs) I'm sorry today. I'm sorry that I can't be more of what you called me to be. Which is funny to say because I'm the only one who chooses how much of you I allow in my life. So help me today, Lord. Help me today to be more of you, less of me. Help me today, Lord, to see more of the mind of Christ in all my decisions. Help me today, Lord, not to be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I pray this for us. I pray it for our church, Lord, 
that as a body of believers we would hold to this. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of this. And when we fail, Lord, because we will fail, help us to live in the grace you provide, knowing that we can always come to you confess our sins and you are faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins, forgive us of all of our iniquity and help us to once again start walking with you. We thank you for this, Lord. In the blessed name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We'd love to hear from you. Visit us at thewaycitychurch.org.